This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Wade Davis. Wade is an author, an ethnobiologist, and a cultural anthropologist. He was an explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society from 2000 to 2013, has helped to produce more than a dozen documentary films, has authored best-selling books, with his work focusing on indigenous cultures across the world. During our conversation, Wade talks about how he became a world traveler and an explorer, and what we might learn from cultures across the world. He talks about the importance of being the architect of your own life, giving destiny its time to find you. Not expecting one's work to change the world, but rather having it be a contribution to the world, and his relationship with Richard Evan Schultes, who was instrumental in discovering psychedelics and psychedelic practices in Oaxaca, Mexico. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Wade Davis. Wade Davis, just want to say thank you again so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's uh, it's awesome to have you on the show, and great to meet you. So welcome Thanks on. For, uh, Dan, it's great to be with you, son. Thank you. I uh, I want to get as much of your life story documented as we can today. It's an amazing it's a it's an amazing story from the research I have done about your life uh, prior to this conversation. But I thought it might be helpful for the listeners just to start at the beginning in Canada as a as a kid for you. And I'm I'm wondering now at this phase in your career what you remember from those early days that may have portended to the career you ended up having. Uh, my understanding is that you were born in West Vancouver in Canada. Um, what was that life like? Were you, did you always have a bit of an explorer gene in you as a boy? Well, Dan, you know, I think it's one thing I always like to say to young people, you know, I've got daughters 33 and, um, uh, and 30. Um, you know, I remember when I was young, I'd look up at people I admired, in my case, the poet Gary Snyder or environmentalists like David Brower, great writers like Peter Matthewson. And I used to think, you know, how can I possibly do what those guys did or those women did, you know, and um, it could be almost intimidating. And uh, but of course, the answer is that they were all 50 years older than me. So, of course, yeah. been a lot of things I hadn't done. So I always sort of begin a, any uh, answer to a question like yours. That kind of caveat is is that everybody has to understand that they're in the process of creating their own myths, um, building their own lives, and that uh, naturally someone like myself, 68 years old, has quote unquote done more stuff than mm-hmm. than in any than than someone 21. But that doesn't mean that we don't also have clay feet, if you know what I mean. I mean, I I you mentioned I was born in Vancouver, but my father was transferred at an early age. My my family was a British Columbia family. My my um, my paternal grandfather was a surgeon at the Western Front, broken by the war of four years and four months 
um, dealing with the the, um, the the dead. And um, he came back to a mining town in the Canadian Rockies where my father was raised. But um, my dad himself, in fact, broken by Hitler's war, um, took a job back in Montreal when I was a little boy. So I actually grew up in Montreal. And that was at a time when um, the, the the French and English in Canada didn't speak to each other. You know, it was leading up to martial law in 1970, kidnappings, bombs, tanks in the streets. People forget that. It was very, very tense. Um, and I lived in a kind of Anglophone suburb, a uh, commuter suburb, uh, plunked on the back of an old Francophone village that went back to the 17th century. And those two aspects probably, if I think about it, were pretty critical in my way of life. First of all, I knew that I had to escape that gray flannel world of commuters, you know, trudging to the corporate centers of Montreal. I, I had this incredible sense that whatever this world was around me in that rather banal suburb, a loving family, but not a family that actually did very much creatively, certainly. I just knew I had to get out. And I knew the only way to get out was to begin to jump off cliffs. Um, and and uh, that's what I sort of did all my life. Uh, I, I only had one word in my vocabulary for new experience, and that was yes. And as my old friend, the late Terrence McKenna said, one of the lessons of the elders, if you will, is that you jump off cliffs and you find yourself landing not on stone, but on a feather bed. You know, the world ultimately exists to lift you up, not to pound you down. And that was one thing. And the other really critical thing, I think, in retrospect, was that there was a boulevard, Cartier Boulevard, that literally divided the French community from the English. And at the corner of that boulevard was a little grocery run by a wonderful old Francophone couple. And my mom would send me there at the age of four and five and, and, and six to get milk for the family or cigarettes or loaf of bread. Um, and I would sit on a stump right beside that store as a little boy and look across that boulevard and think, wow, right across this street is another language, another religion, another way of being. Why can't I cross this street? Now, my mom and dad were very cool. They, the people in the Francophone village loved them, my dad especially. They were so kind and decent, even if they didn't speak a word of French, which was typical at the time of Anglophone businessmen in Montreal. Um, but my community, my society said there was something against crossing that road. And in a way, I think I've been crossing that road ever since as an anthropologist. Hmm. Did you know from an early age that you had the kind of stuff, you know, the personality, the determination to cross those roads that you, you know, unique among your friends had a certain aptitude for engaging for with people who were the other? Or was that something? No, you kind I, of no I think, over time? you know, this is so important that young people in particular listening to this program don't think that people are born with innate qualities. You know, one of the big bourgeois fantasies that I succumbed to growing up, Dan, is the idea that creativity happens to someone else. You know, how many times do you hear in high school, oh, uh, Dan's so creative, or, or the Beatles are so creative. How can I be? No, creativity is not... Um, um, the motivation of action is a consequence of action. You can only be creative if you do. Mm -hmm. And that's a lesson that took me a long time to learn. Um, and I, I, I forced myself to learn that because otherwise I would have frankly shriveled up and died in a way, you know, at least spiritually. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I, in fact, if anything, because of the 
the lack of activity, the lack of example, in a sense of of of, a, of, a, of an engaged, active life, uh, particularly with my dad, who who really was broken by Hitler's war. Um, I I did everything I've ever done with great trepidation, great <laughs> inertia. You know, I have to even to this day, after traveling as much as I have, I have to sort of get myself off my ass to get onto that airplane. You know, and that's something just is in my DNA. But the point is that I always go. And and you know, a friend of mine recently passed away, George Butler, the great filmmaker who made Schwarzenegger a star with the Pumping Iron movies godfather of my little girl and when he tara was born he sent her a silver cup that inscribed always do the thing you're most afraid of and that's how you end up living uh, a life um i think fulfilled you know and and so in that's in that sense i i've done i i have a resume of of um of of activities but almost every one of them i had to work myself up to do by putting myself in a in, in, in an opportunistic situation where there was no choice but success now that you know a lot of people might not have done that i mean if i if i wanted to understand industrial forestry i lied about my credentials and hired on as a forestry engineer in the toughest logging camp in british columbia you know i mean i worked as a big game hunting guy without even really knowing how to hunt myself uh um you know i i dropped into uh countless societies around the world and try to discover that dance of culture that transforms you from an outsider into at least a guest if not a friend you know and i you know i guess in all of these things it's been like that i mean um you know i went to harvard for example why did i pick harvard you know um uh you know, and another lesson for young people is that the world is always trying to hold you back. You know, I mean, if you have long hair and you cut it, someone's pissed off. If you have short hair and you grow it, someone's pissed off, right? If you decide to go to Michigan instead of Wisconsin, someone's pissed off, right? You you can't listen to those voices. And I I was fighting fires when I was 15. And uh, uh, there were a bunch of hippies uh, from America in the camp, and they had a kind of charisma hot to the touch. And it was the only work they could get in, in, in that era as illegal immigrants. And uh, one of them had the Life magazine with the Harvard student strike of 1969, I guess it was, or six, yeah, 69, on the cover. And in a kind of atavistic way, I thought, well, that's got to be the college you go to to become cool like these guys. And I applied. I got in. My family didn't have the money to go down to Boston from Victoria, British Columbia, so I flew to, off by myself, got to Logan Airport, realized I had no idea where Harvard was. I saw this African-American guy with a Harvard T-shirt on. I thought, he's got to know. He didn't know either. So I dragged my trunk through the subway because my family didn't take taxis and got to Harvard Square. And it was insane asylum. I mean, SDS, the Harry Krishna, the demonstrations, the drugs, everything. And then I realized my mom had made a mistake and sent me down to the U- U.S., 10 days early before the dorms opened. So I dragged my trunk through the streets of Cambridge, knocked on the door of a church. Uh, a wonderful pastor, um, Larry was his name, opened the door. And I fell in love with Americans that moment when he invited me to stay with him for 10 days. But he was a prominent war resistor, and his basement of the church was filled with 
kids about to run away to Canada. So I got radicalized within 24 hours of arriving there. And I spent most of my first year at university making trouble, for which I probably should have been thrown out of the country. Uh, and then it came time to actually announce what your major was going to be the following year. I hadn't given it a thought. And the deadline was the next day. And by chance, I had been in the Peabody Museum of Ethnology for the first time. And as I walked out in the spring sunshine in Cambridge with my mind still swirling with these visions of indigenous people and all the colors of the rainbow, I ran into a friend of mine and I said, well, what are you going to major tomorrow? And he said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians and like Forrest Gump. I said, that'll do. Uh, I mean, he just went like that. I mean, after two and a half years of just reading about indigenous people, I wanted to live with them. And I was in a cafe in Harvard Square with my roommate, who was also a rough cut lad from the West, from Spokane. And uh, David, there was a map of National Geographic map of the world right in front of us by chance. And David looked at the map, looked at me, looked at the map, and he pointed to the high Arctic. Well, I had to go somewhere. So I watched my left arm lift and it hit the Northwest Amazon in Colombia. Well, if I had hit Italy, I might have become a Renaissance scholar. But having decided to go to the Amazon on an impulse, there was only one man to see, the legendary botanical explorer, Richard Evan Schultes, um, the greatest Amazonian um, botanical uh, explorer of the 20th century. And I got to his fourth floor Erie at the Botanical Museum. Now, this is a man who incidentally had sparked the psychedelic era yeah. with the discovery of, this, of these magic mushrooms, so-called in Mexico in 1938. And I knocked on his door and I said, sir, I'm from British Columbia. I've saved up money in a logging camp. I want to go to the Amazon and collect plants like you did. Now, at the time, I'd never taken a botany course. I didn't know anything about South America, nothing about botanical exploration. And uh, the words British caught his imagination because he was a great Anglophile and he thought I was, um, uh, and that adjective caught his attention. Uh, one colleague of Schultes once said the only way for Schultes to go native would be to go to London. And um, the, the second thing, Colombia, he thought I was talking about his beloved Colombia, not my British Colombia. And he, instead of asking me for my credentials, this man for whom mountains had been named in South America simply said, son, when do you want to go? And two weeks later, I was in the Amazon. So that's sort of how my life has unfolded. You know, one, one sort of um, sort of stumbling slash inspired adventure at a time. But again, as I always say to young people, you put yourself in the way of opportunities. You become an opportunist, not like a schemer, yeah. but rather one who is, you know, faced with circumstances where there is no choice but success. And you suddenly find yourself you know, capable of doing stuff that was would have been unimaginable to you a, sh a short few months before. Yeah. I want to read a, a quote to you, which I found in, in doing research for this conversation. Uh, and this is, I, I think, by Ruth Benedict. The purpose of anthropologists, she says, is to make the world safe for human differences. You already mentioned the man, Richard Evan Schultes, and I'd love to talk to you about what you remember from that first journey with him. You already noted too that he was a, you know, he's known in part for discovering psychedelic magic mushrooms in South America. What do you recall from meeting the man and that first experience going down there with him? Well, you know, Schultes was a legend, and um, he, he was this con uh, a superficial bundle of contradictions. He he was politically 
so conservative, he didn't vote for the Republican Party. He professed not to believe in the American Revolution. He always voted for Queen Elizabeth II. Um, at the same time, he would go around the country getting kids off marijuana convictions, which at that time were serious criminal uh, exposure, using an arcane um, argument from uh, uh, from taxonomy. He would argue that there were three cultivated species of cannabis, and the U.S. law specifically mentioned cannabis sativa, and that obliged <clears throat> uh, prosecution in a criminal proceeding that showed beyond reasonable doubt that a Found a, a ground up bag of pot was in fact sativa as opposed to indica or ritorellis. Well, it was a it, 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 the main the main point of the thing was that it got kids off um, and saved their their lives in a way, you know. So he was this incredible um, character, and you know, I never went to the field with him. Um, he was. Um, and I can say, honestly, in 18 years of studying with him, and even the six years I took to write his biography, the book One River, in a way, I never had an intellectual conversation with him. He wasn't like that. He was a man of action and deed, who had done such incredible things that merely to walk in his shadow was to aspire to greatness. You have to remember, Dan, in 1974, when I first went to the Amazon, when I would say to my friends, I'm going to the Amazon. It bought me no street cred. They didn't even know where it was. I could yeah. have been saying I'm going to the moon, right? Um, you, you know, in the 1970s, it's hard for your generation to realize the vast majority of Americans had never been in an airplane, you know, yeah. let alone left the country. Um, and, and so um, what was I was so fortunate about, and it's what I always say to young college students, you know, find your mentor, find that man or woman who will guide your life. I was... I had two Schultes, of course, as a botanical explorer. And he'd say things to, you you know, well, Wade, there's one river I'd like to you to know, knowing full well that the process of getting to that confluence would involve experiences guaranteed to assure you that if you emerged at that confluence alive, you'd emerge a wiser human being. I mean, I remember once when I met him at the end of 15 months in South America, I happened to run into him in Bogota and, uh, during those 15 months, um, I had guided an Englishman across the notorious Darien Gap, mm. which was then about the, the way we had to walk it because of the journalist's um, deal with his newspaper. Uh, it was about 250 miles of swamp and rainforest, and we, we it was a horrendous passage. And uh, Sebastian was down to 126 pounds at the end of it. Uh, virtually had to be carried. Uh, you know, you know, we had been lost in the forest for. A, 10 days with no food, chased by the Guardia Civil for no reason whatsoever. Uh, you know, it was, it was a tough passage. And um, I emerged at the other end of it, you know, you know, in a small plane in Panama City with just a rag on my back, $3 to my name. Uh, um, um, and my shirt just covered with vomit from the passengers from that small flight. But I never felt more alive. And um uh, so from then on, Schultes would just sort of introduce me as his lumberjack from British Columbia, who's walked the Darien Gap. That became kind of my name for a while. But <clears throat> but my 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 intellectual mentor at Harvard was an equally fantastic man, David Mayberry Lewis, one of the great Americanists, uh, one of the great social anthropologists of the century, and also a great humanist and an activist. And he was a founder when I was an undergraduate of cultural survival, which grew into one of the great human rights organizations, for, particularly for indigenous people. And in many ways, David was my intellectual mentor. And um, um, because of that, I understood, back to your quote from Ruth Benedict, 
at the very early age that the and at a time, I should say, when social scientists were not speaking to natural scientists, the whole nature versus um, nurture debate, um, the, the beginnings of understanding of the impact of, of genetics on, 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 on human beings, both, both physiologically, biologically, but also potentially socially, culturally, intellectually, whatever, was very hot territory. Um, but because of that, I understood that the forces impacting biological diversity, which was really becoming an issue in the late 70s, uh, for the first time, Tom Lovejoy, who just passed away on Christmas Day, invented the term with Ed Wilson, who sadly passed away the yep. day before Christmas. Um, um, both mentors of mine, incidentally, and good friends. Um, 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 but, but also cultural diversity was, was being brought to the fore by people like David. And I'll tell you a great example of that, um, a historic example. When the Dalai Lama made his first visit to the West, uh, his last talk was at Harvard, and he spoke in the Sanders Theater, and naturally all the faculty and students were there to see him. And that very same night, Ed Wilson was introducing Norman Myers, Kitty Corner at the Lowell Lecture Hall, and Myers had just written... The Sinking Ark, one of the first books to draw attention to the biodiversity crisis. And naturally, the students were all over listening to the Dalai Lama. And literally, in apologizing to Myers for the sparse audience, um, Ed Wilson, one of the kindest, most decent men I've ever known, who would regret these words to the day, um, said, and I quote, if even Harvard students can't get their priorities right, and they'd rather be across the way listening to that religious kook, you know how far we've got to go to educate the public at large. Well, of course, that was typical of the times, right? Um, I must have been the only student that night running back and forth between the two talks. Now, what Ruth Benedict was really saying was something that anthropologists, the activists at least, going back to Boaz, who was his, her great mentor, had always said, every culture's got something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. The other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being us or failed attempts at being modern. Every culture um, is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when they answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 voices, the 7,000 languages of humanity. And those answers and those intuitions become our collective repertoire. Now, now, what David was acutely aware of is what I've been sort of focused on much of my professional life, that by all academic consensus of those 7,000 languages, half aren't being taught to children, which means we're living through an era um, um, of, uh, where half of humanity's knowledge is at stake. And what's really particularly poignant about this is that it's also the era when, ironically, um, after all the early years of conflict, Genex has come to the fore to prove the truth of Boaz's central uh, intuition about cultural relativism. We know the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race is an utter fiction. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth. We're all children of Africa, including those of us who walked out 65,000 years ago. And in 40,000 years, uh, 2,500 human generations carried the human spirit to every corner of the habitable world. But this is the important point. 
if we all share the same genetic endowment, we are all equally smart, all equally mm. brilliant. And critically, how one chooses to use that genius is simply a matter of choice and adaptation. You know, we focused on technological wizardry. The Aboriginal people have been obsessed by untangling the mystic threads of memory inherent in a myth. We've embraced progress. They've stayed still in stasis. I mean, the reason Aboriginal people in Australia, in all 10,000 clan territories, never embraced the cult of progress, they they, 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 they could have but chose not to um, uh, embrace the cult of the seed, agriculture. Um, it's because their entire ethos was one of stasis. The purpose of life was not to change anything, but rather to do the ritual gestures along the song lines, the song lines being the paths walked by the ancestors at the time of creation when they sang the world into being. The rituals deemed to be necessary to keep the world exactly as it was always. In other words, it would be like as if all of Western tradition had been focused on pruning the shrubs in the Garden of Eden to keep it as it was when Adam and Eve had their conversation. Now, again, I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. If we had followed that trajectory, that devotional philosophy, we wouldn't have put a man on the moon. But on the other hand, we wouldn't be talking about climate change. Mm -hmm. So all cultures have something to say. Each deserves to be heard. And on this issue of race, it, it's really extraordinary. I was just over in Hawaii with my good friend, Nainoa Thompson, and, and we're sailing on Hokulea, the, this iconic symbol of hope, the spaceship of the ancestors, this amazing recreated catamaran that's now sailed to all corners of the world. Um, and a young um, oral um, performance artist, uh, Kealoha, um, in, in part of a piece I saw, he did something really wonderful. He comes to the edge of the stage and he says, look, I got to just tell you something. You know, live in hot countries, need suntan lotion. Live in, live in cold countries, you know, need vitamin D or you get rickets. End of story. You know, suntan lotion, vitamin D. That's it. And that distills 4,000 years of bloody racism. And it's as simple as that. It's no more complicated than that. And in a way, what anthropology is all about is is sharing Ruth Benedict's message with the world. That's the entire purpose of it, you know, to yeah. make the world safe for human differences. And you you have lived that life, and it's part of the reason why I was so interested in talking to you is to share knowledge and lifestyles with um, a Western audience related to the indigenous people that you are familiar with, that you've written about, who you've met. And I want to get into what knowledge you just told the story about the aboriginals in australia the other stories that you have you have uh, learned during your career i want to i want to back up a little bit and talk about your personal development and evolution into becoming the explorer you would become in your life and i i, I was fascinated by the observations you were making earlier in the conversation about the internal inertia that you often felt before going on these journeys, that this is not something that, you know, was necessarily hardwired into your nature, but was something that seems like more of a choice. It was a creative act for you to become someone who's living the life that you have lived. And I'm wondering in that first story you told about crossing the Darien Pass, uh, the Darien Gap, it, you know, that sounds like a brutally uncomfortable way of living for 
an extended period of time. You were talking about having throw up on your on your shirt. What do you remember about overcoming the obstacles of comfort, reliable food, indoor plumbing, oh, air right. conditioning? What how oh, did right. you how did you overcome that when you yeah, first started I, I, going on your journeys? Uh, when I when I was four, I've no, I don't even think about that stuff. You have to understand. I mean, one of the great things that I had growing up in British Columbia, which is where I really grew up, or Quebec for that matter. Yeah, is, you know, um, you know, Canadians are tough. You know, like we live in a harsh environment. You know, we live in a world where um, the weight of the winter hovers in the imagination. You know, Margaret Atwood said that if you wanted to distill the essence of England, America, and Canada, you just had to know three words for England, Ireland, America, frontier, and Canada survival. Mm. You know, I, at the age of 15, I was fighting forest fires and our bosses would say, you know, there's a fire 10 miles up that draw of that, up that Valley. Here's a chainsaw and a loaf of bread and some beans, go put it out. And, um, if you can manage to get it out in time and build a heliport before dark uh, tomorrow, um, we might be able to give you a ride out. That kind of thing. and you just went off and did it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I I, um, I remember once I was working. You know, uh, uh, I was the first park ranger in the biggest roadless wilderness park in British Columbia, and then I later uh, hired on as a hunting guide so I could sort of work on mythology with some of the Gitsan and Taltan elders um, because, of course, the myths. You have to become a hunter to know the myths, if you know what I mean. The, 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 uh, the myths are an expression of the covenant between predator and prey and the way you rationalize the terrible thing that you have to kill, the thing you love most. So you, you really have to become a hunter in a sense. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I told my mother that uh, that I'd probably be going to the bush in maybe June month and come back in end of August or something. And November comes along and she hasn't heard from me. So she gets in touch to the Mounties and, uh, uh, the old radio telephone reaches through one of our spike camps and my boss, uh, Ray Collingwood, the outfitter, uh, you know, told my mom looking at a hurricane, you know, you know, war and whatever, you know, epidemic and anything hit this country, there'd be one of us who'd walk out and that's your son. So don't worry about it. And I guess I've always been like that. You know, I have no fear. I, 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 the wild, I, you know, I, I grew up in it. I mean, I, I can, um, I guess I'm so comfortable there, you know, so I mean, and I can, I can be in any, I never, I never, I'm never afraid, you know, I'm, I, I, what, 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 what I, when I'm referred to inertia, it's just that I grew up in a world where there was not an example of action. You know, when I think of friends of mine, like Jim Cameron, who's now like producing three avatars and does Titanic, the sheer, and he's also Canadian, um, you know, the sheer extraordinary, um, uh, uh, I would almost say gall in the best sense of the world, you know, the audacity of being able to take on and direct and bring to fruition projects of that scale is something that I, I so admire, and I find it so impossible to imagine. And in that sense, when I, I think, you know, I've always, and this goes back to the idea of jumping off cliffs, um, you know, I've always been reactive. I've just sort of, in a way, I guess, almost like a magnet, I draw projects to me, and I react by saying yes. So, I mean, for example, that Darien Gap thing, I just come back from a month with the Mamos, the sun priests of the Arawakos in the, in the Sierra Nevada, with my friend Tim Plowman when we were studying coca. And uh, I, I just a kind of a geographer at this botanical garden where I was staying in Medellin said there was this crazy Englishman who had walked from the tip of South America and he was walking to Alaska. 
uh, and he needed someone to guide him through the one place where there was no road, and that was the Darien. And it didn't matter a damn to him that I had only been in a very obscure corner of the Darien before. Uh, he didn't mind because he courted trouble, you know, he, as fodder for his books. You know, his books were all about the Englishman out of his element. So again, you know, that was just a case of me saying me saying yes. Or, or years, years later, after I'd uh, been over three years uh, in the Amazon. Um, you know, searching around for a PhD topic. And um, and I'd sort of been so precocious a botanical explorer that I'd sort of done lots of what would be a PhD subject for a, an ordinary graduate student because I started with Schulte so early as an undergraduate. And, uh, and then suddenly Schulte summons me to his office and asks very casually whether I was interested in going down to the Caribbean island nation of Haiti, infiltrating the secret societies, and securing the formula of a drug used to make zombies. Well, of course, I said yes, uh, having no idea that that whimsical um, um, decision would end up consuming four years of my life and transform my life um, in very deep ways. But all all my projects have been like that. You know, I was on the east face of Everest with my friend Dan Taylor, and the year before, we had traveled four thousand miles across China. We just made up this phony. Anglo-American ecological survey just to get permits to go where scientists hadn't gone since the Chinese Revolution, and uh, that was the year Krakauer. Uh, it, it was the disaster happened on Everest that John Krakauer wrote so powerfully about in his book Into Thin Air, and then and Daniel, who had been nursed on Everest, his his father was a very close friend of Howard Somerville, Mallory's closest friend on the mountain, in twenty two and twenty four. Um, um, found the commercialization of the mountain very disturbing. And the next year, we were trying to photograph um, snow leopards and clouded leopards on the east face of Everest. Um, and we were standing at Petanringbo on ground higher than any peak in Europe. And yet looking up at the Kanchung face of the east face of Everest, two vertical miles of ice rising to the South Pole, and with Lhotse here and Everest there. And Daniel, in his inimitable way, began to speak of these Englishmen dressed in tweeds who read Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 23,000 feet. And I was just immediately hooked. And that was the beginning of the project that led to the book Into the Silence, which took consumed 12 years of my life, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how things happen. Um, my recent book, Magdalena, River of Dreams, about Columbia's river of life and culture and poetry and prayer and commerce, began because I was just helping some people in Colombia promote books um, of natural history intended uh, to send a message to a new generation um, that theirs was not a country of drugs and war, but a place of the greatest biodiversity on earth. And I just almost flippantly said at the end of a luncheon uh, where we've been discussing the latest volume, well, we've done the land, let's do the rivers. And my friends immediately said, yes. And I said, well, let's start with the Magdalena. Well, again, um, before you knew it, five years later, the book emerges. So that's just sort of how things go. Yeah. Yeah. I think for people who hear stories like yours and live hear about lives like yours, there is something innately human about the desire to explore and to learn from the world in the way that you have in your career. And I think a lot of people have this impression that it's just not possible for them you know, you, you said this earlier in the conversation that when you got to Harvard, I think you said you had $3 in your pocket and couldn't afford a taxi to get to campus. In a, in a more specific analysis of your life, especially at the beginning, 
how were you able to afford to do this, right? I mean, where did the ability for you to to finance these trips in the first place come from that, that kind of got you? It's a really funny question because when I look back, um, and it wasn't that I couldn't afford a taxi to the to the university. My family didn't it just take, wasn't done. Yeah. It wasn't done. And yeah. uh, no, the three dollars is when I got off the plane in Panama. In That's right. That's right. And I was the vomit was not the half of it. That was just my passengers in the plane. I'm talking about you know the the, the the that month and a half. I mean, we were you know walking up into our necks in, in the rainy season. The, the Darien was said to be impassable. To give you an idea, before we. Uh, the, the night before we entered the swamps east of the Atrato, what, well before the Darien, a little old lady came up to me and said, Gringuito. And she said, your eyes are blue, your hair is brown, your skin is bronze. It's too bad everything will be yellow by the time you get to Panama. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I look back in those early years, I have no idea where the money came from, but it just sort of came. Um, and not a lot of it, uh, you know. Um, I always worked, um, you know, I, um, I, one thing I learned very early on is that you had to work. So you better find the cool jobs because there are not that many of them. So when I was at Harvard, for example, as an undergraduate, I had a job called Gardner at large, uh, one of two lads from botany on campus who could just walk around the campus pruning shrubs at our leisure and send in our hours to the grounds people. And every so often with an old Irishman, Eddie, we'd plant some trees at dawn. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked in logging camps. I never, I never didn't work. I mean, my work ethic um, is, you know, most people would find it, you know, when I was at the National Geographic, I had two full jobs at the same time. We'd be off in Polynesia making a film about wayfinding. At the end of the day, the boys would be in the surf having fun. I'd be back in my um, hotel room working on the Wheeler Diaries for the Everest book. You know, I mean, I just, hmm. you know, I, for, for those 12 years, I don't think I took a weekend off. I don't even know what it means to take time off. My, you know, one of the things I've been fortunate is that my work is my life. My life's the work, you know. Um, uh, but... Uh, uh, you know, the, the money thing, uh, you know, it, it just has a way of materializing, it seems to me, you know, and I've been very lucky that way, you know, I, um, but I've, I can promise you, I've never made a single decision with money in mind. Mm-hmm. I've never had a single worry, even when I had no money. Um, I just thought the world would look after me. I mean, some of this has been the grace of my parents who weren't at all wealthy. But for example, in 1968, when I was just 14, my mother just suddenly said one day that, you know, Spanish is a language of the future. And as a just a secretary at a local elementary school, she saved all year to allow me to join a group of schoolboys that a, a schoolmaster was taking to Colombia of all places. And in 1968, Columbia was a very long way away. If anyone was traveling, they were going to Paris or London, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was the youngest of the group that went to Cali, Colombia that summer, and the most fortunate, because whereas the older lads were um, billeted with quite wealthy families and spent most of the summer in the sweltering streets of Cali, I was billeted with a very modest or comparatively modest family in the hills that rose above the city. And for uh, eight weeks, I never saw any of the Canadian lads. And it turned out that many of them uh, succumbed to what the Colombians call mamitis or homesickness, right? Um, And I was 
quite the opposite. Not only was I not homesick, I felt like I'd finally found home. I, I kissed my first girl, got drunk for the first time. I had a, just an incredibly wonderful time. And all the, it turns out I learned later that all the Colombian mothers and all these families where we were billeted were phoning them each other saying, you know, why can't these older boys be like little Willie? He's just always so happy. I wasn't just happy. I, I, I felt I had found home. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important point that, you know, there are people who try to live a life somewhat like the one that you have led. And I think learn, it's just not for them, right? It, it, th this is not a lifestyle that every single person necessarily will flourish in. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts for people who are curious if they are one of those people who, like you, while traveling, feel like they have found home. What is important for those people to keep in mind? There's probably no other way to know other than just doing it, like you said, jumping off the cliff. What do you think is important to keep in mind for people who are trying to determine if this actually is a life and a lifestyle that matches them personally? Well, I think at one level, obviously, you just have to go and see if you yeah. if you're comfortable in the open road. Are you comfortable with uncertainty? You know, are you, <clears throat> you know, when I first uh, as a student of nineteen or twenty. Uh, went to live in Columbia. You know, I I had a small backpack of clothes, uh, two books, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and Lawrence's um, Taxonomy of Vascular Plants. I I had a one-way ticket. Uh, I had no plans whatsoever. Um, I, I except not to come back to America until Richard Nixon was no longer president. And um, and I you know and I remember it wasn't easy at first. It was scary. I mean, I I remember arriving at. The airport in Bogota and literally walking down off the ladder to the tarmac and seeing this foot hit the ground. And it kind of, there was a, no one maybe noticed, but there was certainly a moment in of hesitation where I thought, oh my God, you know, you know, what do I do now? And I just watched the other foot go. And then the other foot, you know, it, 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 you know, you, you know, and you just have to have a certain kind of uh, faith. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, in that time, I mean, I think my daily budget was $3 a day, you know, and I lived on the streets. And I, and, and that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I became so comfortable in, in the Colombian society. Uh, you know, I, I, my, my entree into that society was not through the elite educated classes with whom I hang out today because I'm, you know, because of circumstances and, and everything else. Um, but at that time, I was hanging out with the the the, the campesinos, you know, I mean, um, and even the way I learned to speak Spanish was from the Colombian street. And I remember once in, I remember things happened, you know, I was once in the Valpez and uh, Me Too, which is a very um, isolated community at that time. I, you had to kind of cross the Andes, um, in my case, by dump truck, because I couldn't afford really buses. And um, and then you get a hitch a military flight uh, to me too, three hours or two hours, whatever it was, in a decrepit DC-3. And um, I was trying to get to a river called the Rio Pitaparana, where Schultes wanted me to collect some specimens of coca. And I'd run completely out of money. And I was sleeping in a hammock on the riverbank with the itinerant um, in indigenous people, um, and I didn't know, I, I didn't even have money to get back to Bogota, but I wasn't really worried. I was eating with the Indians and hanging out and having fun swimming every day. 
And um, suddenly I saw these two gringos coming, walking down toward me. And they're reporters from the Christian Science Monitor. And they had gone to Harvard and Schultes had said, you know, go see my man and me too. And they were doing some story on South America or whatever. And I just looked at these guys and I saw dollar signs. And I thought, okay, you, you know, if you pay for everything, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a really great story. And I knew that there was a missionary who had a pilot. And so they paid for the pilot. And we flew in to this very remote settlement of San Miguel on the Piraparana, but an hour and a half from me too, by air. And, um, I remember we went into the longhouse, the Maloca, and they were having a meal. And the meal was this big ceramic vessel with a termite's nest in it. And as the termites escaped, all the kids and grandparents would pick them up alive and eat them, you know. And I jumped right in, you know, eating lunch with these characters. And uh, I saw these two journalists sort of turning green. Um, and the capitán, the sort of chief or the uh, head of the Maloca, said to me uh, in broken Spanish, you know, parece que no, que no viene del mismo país. Seems like you're not from the same country. And I said, you know, you're damn right. You know, I'm Canadian, they're American, you know. Yeah. But uh, those guys turned out to be fine. But things like that would happen, you know. And, uh, um, you know, the, the the funny one was a zombie investigation because um, initially it was a brainchild of a very famous uh, psychopharmacologist, Nathan Klein, who had won two Lasker Awards, the American equivalent of the Nobel Prize. He was very prominent in his field, and he was a great um, lover of Haiti. And the Psychiatric Institute in Port-au-Prince, he had established it. It was named for him. Hmm. And uh, he set up a foundation to support um, my research, um, but I never knew where the money was coming from until one day when I went, came back from Haiti and I went to his Upper East Side penthouse to... Uh, debrief him there was kind of a, um, a large almost toad-like figure in the corner of the living room and it turned out he was a benefactor and the benefactor was david merrick the broadway producer and uh, he had just made a fortune with 42nd street and um, he was intrigued by the storyline and thought that this investigation could produce a, a hollywood movie which eventually it did hmm. and uh but what was really cool is that David loved the theatricality of voodoo and he came with me to Haiti and I took him to all these voodoo ceremonies and it was really amazing. But, you know, at that point, then I had, uh, I had uh, um, uh, unlimited funds, right? Because mm -hmm. he was so generous. Uh, but then suddenly um, in, in a 24 hour period, Dr. Klein died during routine heart surgery and uh, unexpectedly, and uh, uh, Mr. Merrick had a debilitating stroke. So I went from being flush with funds to having none. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. But I was over in London at an academic conference. And I, I looked up that old guy, that journalist I had guided across the Darien. And Sebastian, very kindly, though he was kind of a broken man at that point in his life, he never recovered from that, that passage, um, introduced me to his the address of his um, literary agent and i knocked on the door and i went in and i told him i wanted to write a book about zombies and it, before i knew it i mean i had to do some you know opposite proposal in that but i had a book contract from simon schuster mm -hmm. and i used that well first thing i did with that book contract took a girlfriend to paris mm -hmm. and with the money that was left over i um i i finished the research and um and then i had to write a book and i um i was in haiti and i and i started it there um but I wrote two chapters that the publisher rejected. And then I came back. I had malaria and hepatitis at the same time. I didn't even know it because I was 
doing this nocturnal research with the Bizangu Shampoil, the secret societies that only gather at night. So it's very, these fevers just seem to be part of the whole deal because the Bizangu uh, are notorious and, and much feared. Um, uh, in fact, when I applied to the National Science Foundation for support for that research, I was granted uh, the funds, uh, but there was a note on the, uh, an anonymous note on the uh, review saying if I tried to do that work, I would be killed. Well, I didn't think that was true or I wouldn't have done it, but that's the reputation these societies had. So fortunately, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, plucked me out of Haiti and plopped me down on her beautiful farm in Virginia. And then I had to teach myself how to write. And I yeah. did. In seven months, I, I, I wrote Serpent and Rainbow, which became a bestseller and did indeed become a Hollywood movie. And I want to I want to talk about that book because I know that that kind of put you on the map. I think it was published, if I remember correctly, in 1985. And I, before we get into that story, you know, a lot of your work involves extensive travel. And I'm wondering, just as a a, a, a layman, did you have a home? base during this time or are you literally kind of traversing the world no, from that, that, that's that that was a, a difficult period in the sense that i didn't realize how important it was to have a home you know i um when i think about it um you know probably between um i was pretty homeless in a way f- from about you know obviously when i was at harvard as a graduate student i was uh, uh, i was i uh, i was a um, uh, I was a tutor in one of the, in the sort of the hippie co-op house. So for a year or so, Um, but no, there was a period where I was sort of, and I was staying with a friend's family for a while. And no, I, I really had all my stuff in storage. And um, one of the things that was great is that when my friend plucked me out in 1984 and in, you know, and, and I stayed on her beautiful farm, that really became my home for about three years, you know, and that, that anchor allowed me to write the book. And I think that's an important lesson for people. Why, why do you think that is the case that it is important despite your wanderlust and interested in traveling and cultures to have a place? You all need an anchor. You know, we need stability. We need, um, you know, I think uh, um, one of the most productive uh, periods of my life happened um, after I did the two books on on voodoo. Um, I had one of those years that sort of the I Ching talks about, you know, where I was living in the south of France in Provence. I wrote my dissertation. I had a, a, a wonderful French archaeologist girlfriend who was from Provence. And so when I had to write my second book, which is my PhD thesis, I thought, well, why not go somewhere nice to write it? And so I wrote it in Provence, which was great fun. But that winter, there was a call in the middle of the night that my father had died and uh, for my sister. And I literally couldn't get out of the little village of 26 people because there was no transport. And um, my girlfriend at the time was in Paris. And it gave me a time to reflect, and I and I realized that, that relationship had to end, and I so I just walked away from one life and uh, came home to Victoria, and a letter was waiting for me for from the woman who would later become my wife. And long story short, within a single year, my father died. I graduated from Harvard, which had been my home for eighteen years. I left a relationship of five years, uh, met the woman who would be my wife to this day, 36 years later. Uh, she was pregnant. I would become a father. 
I would uh, write a successful book that was made into a Hollywood movie. I would buy my own home. All that happened in 12 months. Yeah. You know, so it was kind of just, and, and then once I had that basis, it, it really, it, it actually allowed me to fly further and faster and higher than ever before, if, if you will, you know. Yeah. And the other, thing, the other thing, very practically, is that you know, you know, the, 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 these books, um, you know, often are accounts of work done in the field. But you know, the, the, the you know, the, the work done in the literature, in the archives. You know, I mean, I really do bring the the kind of serious sort of scholarly research. I mean, for example, for my book, Into the Silence. I purchased 600 books um, for that book alone. I visited 57 archives, you know, we, you know, multiple months in, in, in Tibet, uh, living in monasteries and, um, you know, traveling on foot all around Everest just to be able to tell that tale, Darjeeling, Dehradun, you know. Yeah. I want to underline that point because it, it as I hear you tell that story, it, it seems like having a home base despite being gone from it for extended periods of time actually allowed you to accelerate your productivity and your work. Oh, um, unquestionably. And, and, you know, also the support of a very kind and generous wife, you know, who, you know, my wife, Gail Percy um, herself had illustrious, you know, she was a studied Arabic at uh, uh, Santa Cruz, did her field work in Tunisia uh, for four years, she lived with the Fahelin women in, in Tunisia. She was a fashion model in Paris. Uh, so she would just go and get money um, doing some modeling and come back to, 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 the, to Tunisia. Um, her father was a U.S. senator. She traveled all around the world. Her uncle was head of Save the Children. So she had a very dramatic um, upbringing herself. Uh, and yet, uh, when we got married, she really wanted to have children and she wanted her children not to be raised by nannies as she had been raised, but by a real mom. And mm -hmm. she's been a terrific mother, but I, I'll tell you the most remarkable thing about her is that in 36 years, she has never once said to me, why are you going away? When are you coming back? Uh, how long are you going to be gone? What are you going to be doing? Not once. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I'm wondering for you, as you began to have more, roots you had a home base how much of the year on average are you were you gone from your home in order to do the work you were doing in order to experience the culture on on average roughly how much well, of the, year are you at home you know in gone? the early in the, in the early years um you know when i was single uh, I was virtually constantly on the road. You know, I mean, you, you, you'd do a project in Guatemala with the Mayan sites, and you'd be back in Peru doing this. You'd be off to Haiti. I mean, it was almost constant, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, when you're young, you can do that. I mean, and then once I became a father, I was obviously I wanted to be around for my kids, but I was, we, we, we had a kind of unusual situation in that uh, I was working uh, at that time even when I was at the National Geographic as their explorer in residence, as an, their anthropologist, um, you know, I mostly worked at home. And uh, we lived in Washington, D.C., not far from the headquarters. And uh, so when I was at home, I was really at home. You know, I'd be there for the cookies at three o'clock, you know. And and, uh, and um, we also, uh, I built up, a, bought a, a modest uh, fish camp and built up a nice fishing lodge about a thousand miles north of Vancouver. And as the girls were little, as soon as the school year was over, 
we went right there and it was um you know the nearest town seven hour drive uh off the grid beautiful incredibly beautiful lake you know dozens of bears all over the place incredible wildlife sort of the serengeti of canada um and we drew water from a creek and and you know power from generators and um and so and we also had a rafting company so we did these extraordinary explorations in the summer of all these rivers for the first time the, the hula hula well that had been done before but certainly the sutlahini the taku the raven's throat the caribou cry up in the um in the um, mackenzie mountains of the yukon um the turnigan and the stickeens so the girls really grew up in the wild you know and um that time over the summer became kind of the well that the family drank from the rest of the year. The worst year, I think, um, in my being away, I was away about six months. There was a year when I was making a film series in um, for the Geographic, and, and we were shooting films in Australia and Mongolia uh, and, and in the Northwest Amazon and also in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in Colombia. That was a tough year, you know. But one thing I would do with the children, you know, um, um, for example, I would always go into their local elementary schools when I came back from a trip, not to show off or anything, but but to, you know, do a show and tell with the kids. And that was really quite deliberate because when I was missing, for example, a soccer game um, because I was away, I didn't want the kids saying to my kids, your dad doesn't care. I wanted them to say, what's he going to bring us next? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that really um, helped the kids not feel that my travels were to leave them or to abandon them, but rather, you know, and they were so, you know, part of, I'll tell you, there's a wonderful story. There was a, a Canadian, a biographical kind of um, a series that the CBC has, and they did one on me and they came up and this wonderful director, Andy Gregg, a really lovely guy, um, unbeknownst to Gail and I interviewed Tara and Raina. They must've been about, I don't know, you know, seven and four or, or maybe eight and five and um, so there's little Tara um, perched on the edge of the totem turd house, one of these architecturally designed outhouses that we've built. And um, she says, you know, we don't really have a normal family. Well, you know, what's normal anyway? And, 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 then, uh, and then little Raina says, you know, my dad, my dad, like, uh, he, he eats insects and drinks blood, a lot of blood. And I'm not really ready to do that. And then there's a beat and she says, yet. <laughs> incredible priceless it's it's amazing to me and i'm glad you brought this up because this was something i wanted to cover with you that it, despite it seems in my reading of your your life story never really losing the fascination with travel and with exploration you still did have a family and were able to do that oh a wonderful um, family and, and you know whenever possible i took my my children with me, you know, I mean, that wasn't always practical um, economically or situationally. But, you know, one of the strangest things from the point of view of indigenous people all around the world, going back, frankly, to the to the early European um, conquest of the world, um, uh, is that all these white men turn up with no families, you know, mm. and, um, you know, my 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 children have been, I mean, I mean, it's typical of their generation, but I mean, the, the, the ease with which they travel around the world is is simply uh, astonishing. It makes us look like stay-at-homes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would love to spend a little bit of time on the knowledge that 
you have gained from all of your experiences with indigenous cultures and various cultures in the world that you think modern Westerners might benefit from considering or knowing about? And you already touched on the Aboriginal, uh, some of their concepts and the way in which they mentally and psychologically approach the world in such a vastly different way that than Western Westerners do. We're having this conversation in March of 2022, and it has been a very strange past few years um, in the world, certainly in America, uh, given the pandemic, given recently the the war in the Ukraine. And yeah, I would love to give you an opportunity to talk about what you think matters to or might matter to people who live traditional Western lives, knowledge that might matter to them that could either improve or would be worth considering for our culture in general to make our lives, you know, I, I was, was ma- making some notes in the past week for in preparation for this conversation. And, and despite the amazing technological advancements of America and all of the creature comforts that we have, it's also a culture that is obviously suffering in some strange ways. I had Anna Lemke on the show, who's a, an addiction researcher at Stanford, and she was noting the, you know, the commonality of psychological disorders in the West. And it's almost like there is a clear increase in proportion of uh, depression, you know, tendencies for suicide, the wealthier countries become, um, well, the more know, isolated think, people are. I think there's a, a, almost a simpler thing. You know, um, um, all cultures are myopic, fiercely loyal to their own interpretations of reality. The name of most indigenous people translate the people, the implication being the blokes beyond the horizon are somehow savages. I mean, the word Greek bar, barbarian comes from the Greek word barbarous. If you didn't speak Greek, you didn't, you didn't exist. But the Aztec had the same notion. You know, we, we, like all cultures, are myopic, and we are faithful to our own interpretations of reality. And so we sort of see other people's as being failed attempts at being us in some yeah. sense. This is quite normal. But we are, of course, like every culture, a product of its own decisions, adaptations, histories, and, and, and uh, circumstances. And in the Western tradition, um, when we try to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith, which birthed the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the scientific method and all kinds of glorious things, we we deanimated the world. Um, you know, when Descartes said that all that exists is mind and matter, in a, in a single phrase, he deanimated the world as he swept away all notions of myth, magic, mysticism, but critically, metaphor. And the 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 world became just a stage upon which the human drama alone. Um, uh, unfolded, you know, trees, plants, animals were just props in that uh, stage piece. And at the same time, we um, liberated the individual from the collective, which was a gave us mobility and personal freedom, but it was a sociological equivalent of, of, um, of uh, splitting the atom. And in our tradition, um, a mountain is a pile of rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flight of a bird can have no meaning. 
uh, a forest is um, a stand of cellulose and board feed. And that way of thinking about the natural world is, is what has created this kind of extractive model, which has led to great wealth, great technological achievement, great power and ubiquity, but it's ubiquity around the world and its power around the world should not imply that it's the norm. Quite to the contrary, almost all other traditional societies base their relationships to the natural world on reciprocity. Some basic iteration of the fundamental idea that the earth owes its bounty to people, people in turn owe their fidelity to the earth. And this has profound consequences. If I'm raised to believe that a mountain is a pile of rock, I'll have a different attitude toward it than a child of mine in the Andes raised to believe that a mountain is an apudidi that will direct his or her destiny. If I believe that a forest exists to be cut, as I was taught as a young logger in British Columbia, that makes me very different from my friends amongst the Kwakwakawak who believe that a forest is the, the abode of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that have to be met during the Hamut's initiation. But critically, the issue isn't who's right and who's wrong. It's how the belief system mediates the ecological, the interaction between the society and the natural landscape with profoundly different consequences for the ecological footprint of that culture. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing we've learned is that the way we have deanimated the world uh, and the way we approach it has led us to this kind of environmental um, crisis that we all know we're in. So to me, the great lesson of Indigenous people is not that they are inherently stewards of nature in a kind of Thoreauian sense, and, and, the, and they're certainly not sauvage in a Rousseauian sense. They're just people like everybody else, and they they impact the, the environments in which they live, but they do so in, in much more moderate ways, in part because of the metaphors that propel their lives. The Barasana and the Makuna, for example, in the Northwest Amazon, their most profound cultural intuition is a deep conviction that plants and people are just um, uh, people in another, plants and animals rather, are just people in another dimension of reality. The role of the shaman, for example, in those societies is really not that of a priest or a physician, as is often described. He's more like a nuclear engineer who periodically must ingest a yahe or ayahuasca mm-hmm. to journey into the very heart of the reactor to reprogram the world. You know, the elder brothers, the Kogi and the Arawakos, literally b- believe that their prayers maintain the ecological or cosmic balance of, of the world. Um, the, the, the training for the priesthood involves 18 years of isolation during which the world only exists as an abstraction as the initiates are taught those values. And when they become young men, they're taken out and they see the world in all of its beauty for the first time. And the priest who has trained them as they go on this great pilgrimage to the heart of the world, from the sacred huts to the ice, from the ice to the sea and back to the sacred huts over this huge mountain massif, uh, the priest says, you see, it's, as I've told you, the world really is that beautiful. It's yours to protect. They call themselves the elder brothers, and they dismiss the rest of us who have compromised the world as the younger brothers. So hmm. to my mind, this is the ultimate um, lesson of Indigenous people. And it gets into a- another issue, which is, you know, we haven't talked about is psychedelics. Yeah. You know, you know, I, un- unlike Bill Clinton, 
Um, I did smoke marijuana. I didn't really like it, but I also took virtually every hallucinogen uh, you can name, including many that I discovered myself. You know, Andy Weil and I were the first to publish on the psychedelic toad of the Sonoran Desert, Bufo Alvarius. We found numerous uh, psychedelics in, in South America. Professor Schultes used to say Tim Plowman and I ate our way through South America. But it's interesting when you think of the social changes that have occurred in my lifetime that have led women from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, gay people from the um, closet to the altar. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, um, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was a great environmental victory. Nobody spoke of the biosphere, biodiversity. Now these terms are part of the language of school children. And as we look at the ingredients in the recipe of social change, the one that we seem until recently to have expunged from the record is the fact that millions upon millions of us lay prostrate before the gates of law, having taken a psychedelic. I, I say very proudly, I wouldn't write the way I write. I wouldn't think the way I think. Uh, I wouldn't treat women the way I treat women. I wouldn't be open to um, to gender flexibility and preferences and, and gay men and women. I wouldn't have the relationships I do with the natural world. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, I remember in the late 60s and early 70s, our parents saying to us, you know, don't take these things, you'll never come back the same. And they didn't understand that that was a whole bloody point. You know? <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, we all became transformed. And I think when we talk now about the potential in this revitalization of psychedelics for various um, modalities and th uh, therapeutic uses, um, I think to some extent that the medical uses have been slightly exaggerated. Um, I think, I think, for example, that um, substances like MDMA, ecstasy, can be extraordinarily useful for uh, post-traumatic stress, for for trauma, uh, for couples therapy. I think some of these psychedelics, perhaps psilocybin, can be very helpful for hospice and end-of-life care, uh, not uh, eliminating fear of death, but perhaps making death less less um, um, uh, daunting. Hmm. Uh, I think that uh, plants like San Pedro or, or mescaline containing plants can be very useful for the ultimate healing journey we have to go on, which is a journey of healing with the earth itself. I mean, you cannot take San Pedro and not come away with a closer appreciation and deeper appreciation of the wonder of the natural world. Um, but but I but I certainly think that that um, psychedelics uh, played a incredible role in in the social transformations that we at least some of us celebrate to to this day. And, and there's one other thing I, I'd like to mention. I mean, a, a more personal thing I, I think uh, about how one you know continues to engage the world. You know, you you mentioned Ukraine and COVID. You know, it's a little bit. Um, terrible as the these passages have been, and, and our hearts and prayers are with the people you, in Ukraine as we speak right now. Um, horrific to see um, this occurring, um, as it was horrific to see the uh, assault on Baghdad, for that matter. Mm. Um, but but you know we've never had a world without troubles. It's a little bit like the yeah. commencement speaker at college who stands up to a graduating class and says, "You know the world's a mess. It's up to you to fix it." What? A, no, it certainly is not. You messed it up. You go fix it, you old fart. I mean, honestly. And and um, but one thing I learned um, 
It, my, my father wasn't a religious man uh, at all. I never saw the inside of a church in his presence. Um, but he was a deeply ethical man, and he really believed in good and evil. Mm-hmm. And he would say, son, there's good and evil. Pick your side and get on with it. And I think what he was saying is something the Buddhists talk about, you know, is that, that um, you know, we have this thing in Christianity that there's good, the Christ child, son of God, and there's evil, the fallen archangel, the devil. And we kind of put them into conflict with the hope against hope that one day good will vanquish in some kind of rapture, I suppose, um, all evil from the world. Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. And the Buddhists and Hindu people don't believe that's going to happen. When you know, if you, For example, in the medieval France, if you ask the obvious question, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? You got burned at the stake because it was, it was heresy. It was too close to the quick, right? Mm-hmm. But when Lord Krishna was asked that very question by a disciple, you know, if, if, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil in the universe? Lord Krishna equipped to thicken the plot. In other words, we this good bad thing is what the Buddhists talk about, um, uh, and and so the purpose in life is not to 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 destroy evil, it won't happen, but it's like the path of the pilgrim. It's not the goal is not a destination, it's a state of mind, and if you do as obviously my father was encouraging me to do, um, not that I'm a perfectly righteous man, but I have consistently tried to choose the side of good and righteousness, I really have in everything I've ever done from every encounter with human beings to every grand idea I've had, every journey I've made. Um, But I have no expectation whatsoever that I'm going to win. In other words, if I fight an environmental battle and I lose it, it doesn't stop me fighting environmental battles. If I I try to do something and fail, it doesn't stop me from trying again. Um, you know, I, I I have no expectation of success. When success comes, it's just that, and it's time to move on to the next challenge. And I think this attitude has really helped me avoid the bitterness and yeah. disillusionment of old age. You know, there's nothing sadder than 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 a man or a woman coming toward the end of their life um, who has given up. Um, who has indulged cynicism and bitterness as a kind of protective cloak or an armor uh, over their hearts and souls. I mean, I I have both, I may not be as physically spry as I was when I was 20, but my energy hasn't diminished at all, and my idealism hasn't diminished at all, and my, my sense of of purpose in life uh, and hasn't diminished at all. And I, and uh, uh, although I don't necessarily want to do projects until I literally keel over in senescence, uh, I, I, I don't have any expectation of, of uh, stopping being engaged in the world. Right. So I think that's a good lesson for young people. You know, I, I was so idealistic and, and when, when things would just, when evil kept raising its ugly head, it could be so hurtful and so disillusioned, so so bewildering. And if you realize that, you know, yes, it's Ukraine today, yes, it's COVID the last two years, but don't think it won't be something in 10 years. I mean, yeah. what child has ever been born into a world free of troubles? The issue is what do we do with the troubles and how do we how do we combat evil and how do we uh, do as Lincoln said, um, unveil the better angels of our nature at every opportunity. Yeah. You mentioned this, um, 
a few minutes ago related to Professor Schultes and in, in his and earlier in the conversation as well, in that he in my reading of his biography, I believe he is the first Western scientist to have discovered what we now describe as magic mushrooms. And you've also mentioned during this conversation that you wrote a book about him. What do we know about that moment? Because it does seem to me, you know, I'm, I'm rereading the book, How to Change Your Mind Right Now, which is Michael Pollan's assessment and take on the history of psychedelics and its potential promise for you know, improving ailments that you've already articulated in this conversation. What do we know about that moment um, with the professor in terms of how he stumbled upon these rituals, these substances? And um, that it, to me, it seems like that is a bit of a historic moment. And he's a well, bit of a historic it, it, figure it, it, in that it's way. an incredible story. Um, you know, Michael's a wonderful guy and he's a wonderful writer. And I'm, I'm delighted his book has not only been successful for him, but for the whole field and the renaissance of these extraordinary uh, uh, substances of such uh, both personal, spiritual, psychological, and medical potential. You know, that said, you know, uh, if I, 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 I really like Michael. And if the next time I see him, I'm going to tease him, asking him, you know, where, where has he been for the last 40 years? You know, I mean, the idea that you just, <laughs> yeah. at this point, I mean, it's kind of old hat for most of us. And I, I did feel that, wonderful as his book is, I, I thought Schultes and, and this cadre at Harvard uh, did not the, get the acknowledgement as the historical figures because they were the focus of everything. You know, yeah. people had been people had been interested in these substances. Lewis Lewin had written a book called The Fantastica, um, but there was not much literature. Uh, and it, it started even earlier for Schultes. Um, there was a course at Harvard called Plants and Human Affairs, that had been taught, I would take it from Schultes, I would teach it myself. Um, it had been taught for 126 years. Um, and in in Schultes' time, he had a professor, Ames, who was famously sort of iconoclastic, uh, hated the US government. And so through all prohibition, they had had to distill and ferment and drink copious amounts of alcohol as a point of pride mm. and principle. And so in the lab dedicated to these the, um, these plants, the, the kids had to do a, a, a book a book report. And Schultes had so much other homework um, that he rushed to the back of the class and spontaneously grabbed the thinnest book he could. And he went back to his East Tenement in Boston, um, the family too poor to afford the dorms at Harvard, first of his generation to go to college. And that night, botanical history was made because by chance that thin volume was the only um, publication then available in the English language that described the stunning pharmacological effects of peyote. Hmm. And, and he read throughout the night of these sort of visions of orb-like brilliance. And he went back to Professor Ames the next day and he said he'd like to study that plant for his undergraduate thesis. And so uh, Ames said, well, you must read about it. And that sent him into the incredible literature, Lumholtz on the Wheat Shoal and the Tarahumara, where, where the plant had originated. Um, he learns about the movement to the Kiowa and, and Comanche through Quanah Parker and the genesis of the Native American church. Hmm. And then in the summer of 1936, uh, with Weston Labar, a grad student in anthropology at Yale, in an old 
1928 Studebaker, they drive west to Indian country in Oklahoma, where they studied peyote with the roadmen of the Native American church for that entire summer, mm-hmm. sometimes taking the plant in ceremony four and five times a week. Uh, naturally, he came back to Harvard, uh, a changed man. Um, and that's, he also was in, in Washington uh, to, to, um, to testify, um, along with some very prominent anthropologists like um, Krober from Berkeley, on the rights of the Native American church and the rights of people to use this sacrament, right? And while he was in the herbarium at the Smithsonian, he stumbled upon a clue that would allow him to solve the greatest mystery at the time in ethnobotany, and that was the identity of two long-lost Aztec sacred plants, Teonacatl, meaning the flesh of the gods, and Ololuiki, the serpent vine. Hmm. And Safford, a guy called William Safford, a prominent anthropologist at Smithsonian, had said that Teonacatl was in fact peyote. Well, Schultes was certain it wasn't, and the early Spaniards did not imply that it was, and they suggested it might be a mushroom. And on that specimen of peyote, there was a letter attached from an obscure German engineer, B.P. Reiko, in Mexico to the late director, Dr. Rose of the Smithsonian um, National um, Herbarium, saying, I understand your man Safford says Tehuanacatl is peyote. He's an idiot. It's not a mushroom. I've seen it used. Yours sincerely. Well, Schultes jumps on a Greyhound bus from Mexico City and meets Reiko, and they head down to Huautla in Oaxaca, Mazatec country. And it turns out um, Reiko is a Nazi, and this is a year away from Hitler's invasion of Poland. Mm-hmm. And uh, they make their way. And meanwhile, there's another team coming that summer to that same Mazatec village of Wautla, and that's led by Bernard Bevan, who is a British Secret Service. Ernst would be in Churchill's, his brother would be in Churchill's cabinet. Also with that team was Gene Johnson, a young anthropologist uh, from Berkeley. And that summer, the two teams were going at this puzzle independently. Uh, Johnson's team with Bevan was the first to actually see the mushrooms used in ritual context, although they didn't consume them. But Schultes was the one who actually got the first specimens and was able to identify them as, in fact, being mushrooms. So it was a great discovery, but the war was looming. And uh, one by one, the principals um, passed away. Reiko murdered in Mexico City. Johnson killed in North African campaign. Schultes off to the Amazon, eventually to engage in the great rubber crisis of, of the Second World War. And the threat of the mystery wasn't picked up until Schultes came back from the Amazon after 12 years in 1953. And meanwhile, Robert um, uh, Gordon Wasson, who married to uh, a Russian woman, Valentina Pavlova, and they were great mushroom lovers. And although he was a businessman, uh, vice president of Morgan uh, Morgan Guarantee Trust in New York, his hobby was mushrooms. And he had written um, and believed that somewhere in the world people worshipped mushrooms. He didn't know where or how, but Robert Graves, the poet living on Majorca, somehow had a copy of Schulte's 1940 paper on Teonacatl that had appeared uh, obscurely in American Anthropologist, and he sent that paper to Gordon Wasson. Wasson contacted Schulte's at Harvard. Schulte sent Wasson to Oaxaca, 
to work with Maria Salina. Mm -hmm. After three expeditions, he takes some mushrooms, finally, in ritual context, has his life transformed, and comes back and writes it up for Life magazine. And an editor picks a snappy title, Seeking the Magic Mushrooms, and the title, the name stuck. Mm -hmm. But then it got really interesting. The question was, what do these substances have within them? Hmm. Well, uh, eventually, um, after many mis-efforts or, or failed efforts, uh, Schultes and Wasson sent, I think it was 56 mushrooms to um, Albert Hoffman at Sandoz in Basel, Switzerland. Hoffman fed half the mushrooms to his dog, and nothing happened, and he ate the other half, and something did happen. Uh, the world began to look like Mexico. Uh, you know, he tells a funny story of being fearful that he was going to be swept into a whirlwind of color and, and obliterated. And such an experience might have disarmed an ordinary scientist. But of course, Hoffman wasn't ordinary. Earlier in the war, he had been working to synthesize um, ergobasin or the indole alkaloids derived from ergot, the fungal parasite of rye crops, which would cause communities to go crazy and the tissue to become necrotic. And what it was, of course, was a strong vasoconstrictor, hence the gangrene in the extremities, which is what he, Sandoz was hoping it to be a drug uh, for hemorrhaging women after childbirth in particular. And so in the war in 43, Hoffman had made the 25th of a series of indole alkaloid derivatives. And he suddenly got dizzy and and he went home on his bicycle because he had no gas for a car in the war. And it turned out to be the most momentous bicycle ride in history because on the way home, he were, went on the world's first acid trip. Mm -hmm. And so he quickly identified uh, psilocybin from the mushrooms, but then he, he turned to Ololuiki, the serpent vine, which turned out to be a morning glory, also discovered or collected for the first time by, by Schultes. And here, what Wasson found, he couldn't believe his eyes because he thought he had polluted his samples because it turned out that the active constituent of Ololuiki were in fact indole alkaloids, very close to LSD, suggesting in fact that Schultes had in effect uh, discovered LSD in nature five years before Hoffman synthesized it in the lab. And Schultes went on, I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, the whole ayahuasca uh, excitement began with the Yahe letters, which were the letters between Allen Ginsberg and Bill uh, William Burroughs, uh, published, you know, by City Lights. Uh, and uh, that began in the early 50s when Burroughs went down to Columbia to look for the ultimate mind-bending high, and he hooks up with Doc Schindler at the National Herbarium, and that's, of course, Schultes. And Schultes turns him on to ayahuasca, uh, and uh, and it was actually, ironically, uh, Bill Burroughs was the first to actually collect the admixture plant, Chakruna, used in the ayahuasca preparations. He didn't know what it was for or why, but he t told Schultes about seeing it. And uh, um, they were together when Schultes had that breakthrough. Yeah. You said this earlier that um, oh, people often warn others when they're considering doing these substances that it's going to change you and, and you quip that, you know, that's the entire point. Um, I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I know the con our conversation is, is winding down at this point. We could probably talk for three or four days. There's so much I would love to cover. Maybe we can do another one of these at some point, but for yourself, um, how have you know you've already mentioned this that you've tried a lot of these different substances in your career how has it changed you 
How, how have those experiences changed who, who you are as a person? Well, you know, it's, it's so, it, you know, it's, it's so, it's so hard to, to say, you know, um, but, um, you know, I was very fortunate that I, you know, I was right at the heart of the drug subculture. Um, and uh, I had some part of me that always was able to sort of approach these things in a, in a kind of a thoughtful or sincere, maybe, I don't know, it sounds a little precious. I mean, for example, when I was living in Colombia and engaged with Tim Plowman in the great study of of uh, the, the of coca, the divine leaf of immortality, of course, the source of cocaine. I mean, people would bring briefcases of cocaine to our farm and just you know open them, literally briefcases and and uh, four inch deep of of cocaine and open them for anyone to use if, if they could play their guitars. Well, I was lucky. I just always hated everything about cocaine. Yeah. I hated the drug. I hated the culture of the drug. And by the same token, I've, you know, I've never, I've always, I've only, I've only been interested in psychedelics that can, can, can allow you some kind of spiritual insight, you know, and by the same token, I've never found personally marijuana very useful. I can see it being used medically. I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed it when I was a teenager deconstructing the world and laughing at the world, uh, but I've never found it that useful since. Um, but I, you know, I, I think, you know, you know, if you think the contrast between Tim Leary and, 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 and Richard Albert, who became Ramdas, you know, Leary, Leary was sort of, you know, literally using LSD until the day of his death. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Albert, as he famously said, got the message and he hung up uh, as George Harrison did. You know, I mean, I think I think there's a sort of a there's a, always a question of, and I don't begrudge anyone who continues to journey on these substances, uh, if, they, if, it, if it's helpful for their own spiritual growth. I, I tended to be more more um, of the school that you, know, you, you got the insight and then you mm-hmm. figured out what you're going to do with that insight in, in the rest of your life. And in, in that sense that I, 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 I really can't separate the person that I've become uh, from those experiences together with everything else I've experienced in life, like any other human being. But I remember at Hirona, the, one of the, the first world ayahuasca conferences, and I was asked to do a keynote and I've, you know, I, as a speaker, I'm very comfortable. So I can actually sometimes, you know, be, be, be delivering a speech and sort of then also step outside of the experience and watch the person delivering the speech and think of something else, you know, or, mm-hmm. and I was watching myself give this speech and I was thinking, how on earth did that little middle-class boy from the suburb of Montreal um, become this person with these these sort of um, odd beliefs and ideas and, and certainly eclectic experiences? And uh, I think the answer is kind of the glory of the human life. And, and uh, again, that's a nice note perhaps to end on is that, um, you know, um, I always say um, to young people, um, give as much thought to the person that you'll become as the career that you'll pursue mm-hmm. uh, because wealth is ephemeral. It really is. And loving compassion uh, is eternal. Um, and to parents, I always say to be patient and, and because it takes, it takes time to bring into being something that has never existed before, which is a full dimensions and character of a unique human existence, which is what a life is. Um, but all of these things add up and they all become part of the whole. And I, 
certainly don't think that I would have been drawn to understand biology, mythology, um, ethnography, the whole idea of cultural relativism. I don't think I would have been free to truly understand uh, that every culture has something to say that each deserves to be heard. You know, that, 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 uh, um, you know, you know, that, that, that there are other ways of being, other ways of thinking, other ways of orienting yourself in social, spiritual, um, psychological space. I don't think all of that would have come so readily to me had I not had all my um, uh, um, uh, restraints and shackles, um, um, you know, shattered yeah. by the earth shaking experience. I mean, it's like Gordon Wasson said, to try to explain to someone who's never taken a psychedelic what the experience is like, is like trying to explain to a blind man, a man blind from birth, what it is to see, what is color, you know. Yeah. And I think those of us who have had positive experiences with psychedelics, which is a vast majority, um, really have a, a, some kind of deep intuition that that realm unleashed by these curious sacred medicines is in fact closer to the real world and that, that it's in fact the ordinary realm of the mundane that is a crude facsimile you know and the question is then how do we uh, you know how do we how do we live in this world um as um, as um, ordinary yet sentient beings yeah wade this was such a pleasure and there was there's one quote of yours that I found that I, I want to read. This is from a, a Manga Bay article from, from 2020. And this, I think, summarizes a lot of what we've talked about today and, and ideas that you, you've stated during this conversation. And this is, I titled this section um, related to how to live a purposeful and meaningful life. And this is, this is, from, this is a quote of yours from, uh, from this article. The purpose in life isn't really to win. There are two things that cause bitterness in old age, and the one goal in life should be to reach your older years without bitterness. And bitterness depend bitterness tends to happen to those who look back on on a life of decisions imposed upon them by the outside when they've succumbed to the kind of social pressure. And contentment comes to those who have been the architect of their own lives. And they look back on decisions made by them, perhaps not always correct or the best, but at least they own them. And so they are responsible for who they are. That is the key to contentment and peace in old age. So on that front, I say to young people, be patient. It takes time to form something as unique as an original life. Give your destiny time to find you. Don't compromise. The other bitterness also comes with people who expect to win, expect to change the world. One of my favorite writers, Peter Mathesian, I read when I, when I did think I could change the world. That was my entire purpose in life, if you will, in my youth. Peter wrote, anyone who thinks they can change, can change a world is both wrong and dangerous. And he has had in, in mind people like Hitler, Mao, and Stalin. But what he is also saying is in a Buddhist sense, it's not the destination. It's, about winning every, it's not about winning every battle. It's about the process. I found that even though I'm, this was when you were 66, now 68, I have the exact same energy for new causes the same energy for new passions, the same excitement when I embrace a new book project. And it's because I don't expect any of my books to change the world. I just expect, the, expect them to be my contribution to that world. And in that sense, I think it allows one to really have peace of mind. 
And I think it's kind of true. The Buddhist Dharma is not about twiddling of thumbs. The Buddhists are onto something. And I'd love to close with that quote and to allow you to expand on that or just affirm it in any way that you can or modify it um, based upon your just general life outlook. I, I thought that was such a beautiful way to put how to deal with our own egos and a lot of ambitious people's desire to change the world and the desire to craft a life to, as you say, not to have bitterness towards the end of one's journey. I'd like just like the close and give you an opportunity to respond to that. Well, you know, that, that's a funny, you know, that's, I think that was an interview and it's sort of a hodgepodge uh, um, um, cobbled together of a bunch yes. of things I probably said. And some of them I already said in this uh, podcast with, with, with you, um, you know, I think a key thing to young people is um, um, th- this idea of patience, you know, um, you know, you come out of college and, and, and you're suddenly expected to know what you're going to do. And and a career is not a, uh, it's not like a jacket you put on. Um, It's something that builds around you uh, decision by decision, choice by choice. Um, um, And, and, and a vocation is just in fact, a way of looking at the world and only for a time. You know, the goal is to make living itself your 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 job, uh, the, the the kind of the wonder of being alive for this short period of time, and and I think the 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 key challenge in life is to become the architect of that life, and that's what I meant when I said, you know, bitterness comes to those who look back upon a life of decisions imposed upon them, yeah. uh, and contentment comes to those who can own their choices. They may not have always been right. But they own them, and and uh, and that that inevitably brings on a certain amount of contentment. So I always say to young people, you know, do not be patient, do not compromise, but critically, give your destiny time to find you. You know, mm. um, you know, and and I want to I want to stress that it that it's a struggle. I mean, when I was 23, 24, 25, twenty uh, five, come out of a precocious um, career as a young undergraduate at Harvard two and a half years in South America. Um, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I had spent a year in a, in a logging camp and, you know, I, you know, I, I just parent parental pressure, societal pressure. What, and I, I literally uh, applied to graduate school in botany with Schultes and law school uh, at the same time as if they were the same thing. Ridiculous. And uh, fortunately and mercifully, my, uh, my sister was, uh, articling at a law firm, a posh law firm in Vancouver. And um, I went to pick her up one day and this kindly older woman behind the reception said to me, are you Karen's brother? And I said, yes. And she said, you just came back from the Amazon. Yes. And you eat all these weird plants. Mm-hmm. You follow me. And she marched me back through the entire law firm to the library. And she had set up a, de- a, a ladder that, that and the, she ordered me to climb the ladder, which I dutifully did. And it brought me eye to eye with a lithograph of a kind of 17th century English barrister, you know, crooked nose, big belly, wig, hunched over. And she just yelled up with her sweet voice from the base of the ladder, is that you? I screeched and I said, no, I came down the ladder. She literally took me by the hand to the front desk, pointed the telephone. I lifted up the telephone. 
called the law school in question, retracted my successful application, and went off to Harvard to study yeah. with Maltese. So it's a funny story, but it also is a story that says how tenuous things can be, how delicate things could be. If I hadn't gotten into Harvard or if something had, you know, your life. So this is the idea about being patient and giving your destiny time to find you. I was, I didn't know what I was going to be at all in life. At 33 years old, I was pretty much a vagabond, um, you know, living here, there and everywhere. And then because I was patient, even as all my peers fell away into medical school or law school or business school or graduate school or whatever, um, I was still kind of out there, you know, a kind of Kerouac-like vagabond. Um, and then I wrote Serpent in the Rainbow, and I suddenly remembered uh, listening to the first notes of Day in the Life when Sergeant Pepper was first released when I was a little, little boy on a plastic you know, clock radio in my bedroom growing up in, in Point Claire. So 67, what was I, you know, 14, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and thinking at that time, what words can do, as I listened to the lyrics of a day in the life. And there I was, you know, years later, I discovered that I could be a writer, that's what I was going to be. But had I not been patient, had I not waited, had I not put up with so much anxiety and uncertainty, mm -hmm. Uh, even neuroses, I would say, um, that day would never have come. Yeah. And to sneak in one last question, there's something very Jungian about that outlook on on life in that, it, as I hear that story, it seems like it's waiting for, and you can correct me if, if this is incorrect, and a strong inner signal of direction, an inner compass, which I think I've heard you use that phrase in prior interviews before, that it's an inner compass. Is that is that how you would frame that to a young person to wait for that kind of a call? I think so. I mean, you know, there, there is something called destiny. And I think that um, I always had a sense of destiny. I, mm. I, I always knew uh, that I was not going to do the ordinary, you know, whatever that was. You know, I, I couldn't afford to do the ordinary because the ordinary had killed my father. I mean, yeah. he described his job as a grind. And every day as a little boy, I, I literally thought he came home a little shorter. And he actually did, you know, and it did kill him, literally killed him um, with a heart attack. And um, so I didn't really have a choice. But I, again, you know, th this is part of what, you know, is a kind of hero's journey because, you know, you go off, and you don't know if you're coming back. I mean, that's yeah. what makes it great. And you don't know whether you're going to find that destiny, but if you don't give it a chance and you don't try, you know, you won't find it. Yeah. Wade, I love this. Um, and I want to say before we, we close this off, just thank you for, for doing this and sharing all this information. It was a real pleasure and honor to be able to, to do this and talk to you. So thank you so much for all the time. Well, we'll do it another time. Take care. Too. Thank you, Wade. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.